Well, that's tonight, too. Yeah. Uh, oh, I Big night. All right, so that'll do it for us. DSR's uh, through Thursday, and also, then we're off for the next... Also, uh, we figure out plus. what they do with the whole Edge thing. Edge thing. <laughs> oh, wrestling. Oh, that was a good show last night. Good oh, show. get out of here. <laughs> uh, all right, that'll do it for us. Regular shows through Thursday, and then we're off all next week because of spring break. Until then, from Ann Arbor. Good night. City of Michigan Wolverines and the Nebraska-Omaha Mavericks in game two of their weekend series here on that could very well be very chippy following last night's performance where no and they're gonna give a five minute major wow what are they calling on this one i think he pulled him down and that like i said he spun him around when he hit him which makes me think that he might have grabbed something they gave him a five minute major for neen wow i've never heard that in front just knocked aside good job there by glenn danny then a big hit and that's gonna be a he's gone danny fardig is gone for that hit He's going to get a hit from behind. That's a second five-minute major. We're at five on three for three, nine. And there's no way Danny Fardick stays in this game after that hit. Oh, wow. Dude, did Danny Fardick get lucky there? They're just calling a roughing. That is for that. That was a bludgeoning. Charleston with it. Far side to Olim. Olim middle to Del Grosso. Another shot off a man in front in for a goal. And just like that, we have back-to-back -back goals. 2-0 Nebraska-Omaha. As that shot got tipped into the air and then deflected in off the chest, I think, of Perslow. And wow, it is just like that. 2 to nothing with 9.40 remaining here in the first. And oh, come on. Just a stupid penalty by Brian Liebler. And Nebraska-Omaha is going to try and kill this one. In comes Platisha. Platisha coming forward. We have another penalty. A third one. Michigan's going to get themselves like five penalties on this play. My lord. Liebler. Oh, Brian Liebler. He made one of the UNL players do a somersault in the middle of the ice. Michigan's going to get... I, I would not be surprised if we get Liebler with at least two minors. In fact, he's lucky this is a TV game because now he gets a free TV timeout here to talk with his players. And oh, you have to know he's just livid. Look, I mean, look at him. He's red from up here. We can tell. Michigan zone. He's a moron. He just he gave back the power play. Way to go, Matt. The, oh, are you kidding me? Michigan is just they're, they're, they're giving this game away. Matt Rust had had the penalty call and instead of just going away, he went in, jumped in at the end of the play, got himself an extra penalty and we're back to a power play once again. And oh my, what the Michigan's playing stupid. They look like they look like Michigan State and even Llewellyn's getting another one and, and you know what Russ got the wrong guy Charleston yeah. tripped him up and then Russ took out Del Grosso who did nothing and then Llewellyn retaliated against nobody the team down low to Wahlberg Wahlberg looking for a lane back to Caparuso in front and Michigan scores Travis Turnbull on a beautiful feed from Louis and Michigan scores Welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. Sounds like Michigan's going to score a little money from this stimulus package that uh, eked its way through uh, the, the Senate. And it's interesting to keep your eye on the dynamics of this bipartisanship because obviously I don't think we're going to see too much of it. Um, there, of course, are logical explanations for this. The House Republicans, uh, led by John Boehner, don't call me Boner, is uh, 
pretty much a party of the of the far right at this point. The moderate Republicans from the Northeast have either retired from uh, the House of Representatives or have been defeated in uh, various um, primaries or general elections. Three scenarios explain their departure over the, uh, I would say, the last three congressional election cycles. Um, and even the, the demise of the Republican Party, I think, really started uh, back in 98 with the impeachment uh, business, because uh, we all know that George Bush never won um, the 2000 election. It's quite interesting, by the way, in a, in a book that I recently finished. It turns out that Sandra Day O'Connor, um, who was one of the justices in the 5-4 Bush v. Gore decision that gave the presidency to George Bush, uh, apparently was uh, heard at uh, various uh, elite cocktail parties in Washington expressing disappointment uh, when she discovered that Gore uh, had won, apparently the night of the election and also at a subsequent cocktail party, because she had planned on retiring. And uh, once it became clear to her at the time, b before the Bush v. Gore decision, that uh, Gore would become president, uh, she was going to delay this retirement. Now, as we all know, she eventually did retire and uh, was replaced uh, on the Supreme Court essentially by uh, John Roberts. And then John Roberts did a flip, a flip of uh, jobs uh, when Rehnquist uh, was forced, uh, well, he basically <laughs> became so ill he, he died. I think he's dead. Anyway, um, that allowed Bush to appoint Alito and name John Roberts as the chief justice. Anyway, a couple of uh, scholarly articles have been written about this as to whether or not this was a conflict of interest, but it would strike me that it clearly was if this were the case. But what can you do about it? Uh, it's a done deal. And, of course, in a recent uh, presidential survey, it turns out that Bush on various uh, measurements, and of course these are somewhat arbitrary. I think that the proximity to the bicentennial of Abraham Lincoln uh, allowed a Abraham Lincoln to be rated as the number one president with George Washington number two and Franklin Roosevelt being number three. I would flip those around a bit. I don't think there's any question that in terms of personality and character, Abraham Lincoln was our our greatest president. Uh, in, in many ways, but uh, Franklin Roosevelt had to deal with uh, two major crises uh, during his presidency, and he also was president for more than 12 years, which allowed him more opportunities to screw up, as we say. And, of course, uh, FDR has been criticized not for uh, handling World War II or the Depression. Uh, it's interesting to observe as the media continues to analyze the economic problems that our, our country confronts, that you will see many pundits on television um, pretty much right at, you know, trying to articulate revisionist history about the, the Great Depression. Uh, the Great Depression, of course, started uh, back with the Wall Street crash in 1929, and Roosevelt was there to pick up the pieces. And after the Supreme Court struck down parts of the New Deal, 
um, the economy did slip backwards uh, in many ways. And, of course, uh, historians have always judged Roosevelt's attempt to pack the court when he attempted to increase the numbers of justices on the Supreme Court uh, because he had essentially inherited uh, many Republicans on the Supreme Court, and they had, in due course, uh, in 1936 and 37, struck down parts of the New Deal. Well, this was the lesson that uh, uh, Keynesian economics needed to be um, tried again. Um, and uh, there's no question that this big debate, this philosophical debate that we've had over this current stimulus package is part of the legacy of, of Franklin Roosevelt and Keynesian economics versus uh, monetarism um, versus the historical debate about Smoot-Hawley, which is, which is kind of interesting because in the initial bill, apparently there were some sort of buy-American provisions that uh, have been all but whittled down or outright removed. It's a little unclear what is in the final bill, and Obama will sign it later in the week. I found it fascinating, by the way, uh, last week, it was last Monday night when Barack Obama had his first press conference. Um, it lasted almost precisely one hour, and I missed uh, the beginning of it, but it was fascinating to watch Barack Obama answer questions. And it was interesting. I haven't watched Fox News in quite some time, but I flipped over at one point to see their analysis. And their analysis was that President Obama, you know, was essentially too erudite, too detailed. Uh, he took seven minutes to answer a question, one of the commentators said, and that there were, quote, no sound bites, uh, which I found amazing because I thought there were a lot of sound bites. And I wanted to give the uh, mainstream media a brain damage award in general because the most profound soundbite of the evening was a four-word phrase. The party is over. <laughs> I don't know how uh, much more of a soundbite you can have. This may be one of the most profound soundbites that any president has ever issued. It's a four-word declaration. The party is over. And uh, even four-year-old children understand what a party is. They go to birthday parties. They put on f funny hats and make noise and bring presents and eat cake and have fun and play ring around the rosies and hide and go seek or, or whatever. But even a four-year-old knows w what the meaning the party is over. And, of course, Obama was stating that in reference to the continuing economic problems that we have continue to witness, and they continue to unfold. Uh, we had a report over the weekend that the Japanese economy has, in the fourth quarter, declined somewhere between 3 and a half and 4% outright. Uh, the Japanese uh, leaders basically stated unequivocally that this was the greatest crisis since uh, the end of the Second World War from their perspective. And Japan, by the way, is a very interesting country to examine in terms of the uh, current global financial crisis. The Japanese economy relies heavily on uh, exports. They make brilliant cameras. Um, Mandrake, in the infamous Dr. Strangelove, even has a funny comment about how adept the Japanese are at making cameras. 
well, this was movie was made in the early 60s. And uh, Japan has relied on the fact that uh, they make uh, outstanding cameras, electronic consumer goods that Americans want to buy, uh, and cars, automobiles. But we're now uh, seeing that Toyota, for instance, reported its first loss in 70 years, um, that the Toyota Corporation is planning layoffs and slowdowns at various plants around the country that, uh, alas, will seem to affect the infamous Senate trio of Corker, Shelby, and McConnell. Um, And there are even reports, by the way, that Japan is leasing land in California where they're just stockpiling automobiles that they can't sell. So the party is over in many respects. But it's interesting to note, by the way, that the Japanese economy and its bank is not as impacted by the um, so-called subprime mortgage crisis. Because as I've noted in some previous shows when I've uh, been without Jim Dwyer, my partner, who's uh, got school obligations tonight, so we'll, uh, he'll be back with us next week, I've noted, note, noted that there are several different problems with the economy. One is a jobs problem, one is a housing mortgage problem, and a housing production oversupply problem. Then, of course, there's the banking crisis that involves the precise um, financial conditions of America's largest banks and how the regulatory apparatus, or maybe I should say apparati, of Washington, D.C., because there are a number of different regulatory agencies that have to deal with the continuing banking crisis. Most consumers and most people out there, of course, have heard of FDIC. That's the Federal Deposit Insurance that the federal government uses uh, to guarantee deposits that people make in banks. This, of course, was one of the early aspects of the first 100 days of the so-called New Deal under FDR, because during the Depression and before FDR had actually taken over, thousands of banks had gone out of business. There were bank runs. And what the government did was it came in and it created an insurance and a regulatory um, agency to handle consumer deposits so that when you deposit money at a bank here in town, uh, we'll just name a bank. How about Chase, J.P. Chase? It's uh, one of the big Wall Street banks that's taken TARP money. Your money is insured now up to uh, $250,000, by the way. They changed this... uh, limit um, during the initial phases of the banking crisis, because in the in the mid, mid part of September, there indeed was a run on a couple of banks, the most famous being Washington Mutual. And Washington Mutual was then eventually forced into a sale by the FDIC. And I've noted in a previous show that Washington Mutual had about $195 billion in deposits, Unfortunately, the FDIC Corporation only has $63 billion in its vaults. That bank failure would have been catastrophic. So the regulator stepped in and forced a sale at a bargain basement price to one of the banks that they interpreted as more solvent. Um, 
Anyway, getting back to the Japanese for a second, because they are important. It's, this is uh, still the second largest economy. But its problem is that its export earnings are plummeting um, because cars and more expensive elect electronic uh, consumer items are simply not being bought in our retail sector. And needless to say, over the next six to nine months, as this stimulus package slowly sort of trickles and spreads around, oozes around in the economy, we're going to see continuing layoffs in the retail sectors. This is patently obvious because Christmas was the worst in, oh, something like 25 years. Uh, retail sales in January were a catastrophe for some companies, and we've seen stock prices of these uh, major uh, national retail sector, uh, you know, uh, the companies go way down in recent years because it's quite clear that American consumers are pulling back. Um, the Japanese economy, by the way, according to the International Monetary Fund, and I'm uh, quoting here from Martin Flackler, Fackler, excuse me, Martin Fackler from the September 25th 2008 edition of the New York Times that talks a little bit about the financial crisis that was then occurring. Um, he writes that on Monday, the Mitsubishi Financial Group, Japan's largest bank, announced that it was acquiring up to 20% of Morgan Stanley in a deal worth as much as $8.5 billion. Morgan Stanley, of course, was one of the five investment banks that was pretty much on the rocks back then. The failure of Lehman led to a default on some commercial paper that led to a default from a company called the Reserve Fund, and this is actually what led to this bank run that I was talking about earlier that occurred at Washington Mutual. In any event, uh, Martin Fackler writes, Japan's banks find themselves in the position almost by accident, and he's talking here about uh, Wall Street is attracted to uh, the Japanese uh, financial institutions um, because they report, for instance, uh, that's in this article that Sumanoto Mitsui Financial Group was in talks to invest as much as $2 billion in Goldman Sachs, joining the billionaire Warren Buffett, who on Tuesday announced that he was buying $5 billion worth of equity in the Wall Street uh, bank. And Goldman Sachs is the one so-called investment bank that uh, sort of emerged unscathed. Merrill Lynch was forced into a sale. Bank of America bought it. We've seen a soap opera over the last several uh, weeks involving the CEO of Merrill Lynch, a guy named John Thane, who dished out hundreds of millions of dollars of bonuses and went on a redecorating spree uh, in the midst of this financial rubble. And my recollection, and I'm just going to roughly quote the number here, was that Merrill Lynch basically sold itself to Bank of America for 22 cents on the dollar, which is a huge loss uh, by any reasonable, uh, from any reasonable perspective. Martin Fackler writes, Japan finds themselves in this position almost by accident. Having survived the subprime crisis relatively unscathed, they suddenly appear to be the last man standing in the global 
finance. According to the International Monetary Fund, Japanese banks stand to lose about $8 billion in the $1 trillion subprime meltdown. Martin Fackler continues, the banks uh, have left them with healthy balance sheets and plenty of cash. They control almost $14 trillion of household savings, one of the largest pools of capital, exactly what the crippled Western firms desperately need right now. While Japanese Incorporated may suddenly appear formidable again to outsiders, outsiders, the view from within is quite different. Now, it's fascinating that Hillary Clinton, who's now the Secretary of State, no longer the presidential candidate or the senator from New York, decided in her first, quote, official visit to actually go to Japan. Japan is one of the only countries where America can buy into this capital. And what you may see over the next couple of weeks uh, as other uh, financial plans emerge uh, from the Obama administration, and of course the big we- uh, news over the weekend is the fact that he is not naming a, quote, car czar, but is naming a car committee in which Timothy Geithner, Secretary of the Treasury, and Lawrence Summers, uh, his uh, chairman of economic advisors, basically two of the most powerful uh, financial advisors in the Obama administration, are going to sit on this financial um, supervisory agency that, that is overseeing the bailout. And, of course, uh, Chrysler and GM are the ones that took the, quote, TARP money. It's about $17 billion. We saw that in January, Chrysler sales were down more than 50%. Um, and while Toyota is at least able to lease land to stockpile Toyota's Lexuses and whatever, the, uh, Priuses and whatever else the heck they make, uh, Chrysler has been virtually shut down since Christmas. Um, they went on a kind of a four-month, four-week uh, furlough, so to speak. And this obviously has very important uh, relevance to the state of Michigan. It's quite clear to me that Chrysler is simply not going to make it. Um, so we may actually see some sort of, um, I don't know, <laughs> They need to come up with capital, but the problem is there aren't any auto companies, global auto companies, that are really going to get involved with uh, Chrysler at too much of a level. There's been reports that the Fiat Corporation, an Italian auto company, had been attempting to get back into the United States, and it's going to come up with some sort of uh, quasi-partnership with Chrysler to build small cars here in the United States. So we will see what happens with that. But obviously the financial condition of Chrysler is uh, in, uh, in, in bad shape. Now the Chinese government, and by the way, there was a superb documentary on um, PBS a couple of weeks ago in which the historian Niall Ferguson, um, spelled Niall, but I think it's actually pronounced Neil. It's sort of an Irish um, hybrid did a superb uh, story about the history of money. He has a new book out, and I should have wrote the title down because I I wasn't expecting to talk about this, but uh, 
I was going to focus more on the Fox News Network's Brain Damage Award and how, in, interestingly, the media companies are now, while they're hyping a lot of trivia and a lot of really small scandals, which is what they love doing, uh, they love hyping the small scandals while the big scandals go unpunished. Um, late breaking news today, by the way, on Michael Phelps, apparently the, uh, quote, pot charges are going to be not pursued in the state of South Carolina. But uh, the fallout from that has uh, occurred, and as we noted last week on Gray Matters, he's been punished and flogged uh, much more harshly than any of the war criminals involved in the invasion of Iraq, or uh, shall we say um, subcontractors that uh, allowed our soldiers to be electrocuted and whatnot. But in any event, um, at the end of the at the end of the Niall Ferg- Neil Ferguson uh, documentary, and apparently there's going to be a frontline sort of analysis of the financial crisis uh, on tomorrow night's show, which I highly recommend. Probably Frontline is consistently good on these uh, subjects, very good on the national security issues talked about a concept of chimerica in which, of course, he's merged the symbiotic relationship financially between uh, China and the United States. China, of course, makes cheap household goods that are sold in our retail uh, stores. Um, Walmart, I believe, has $200 billion worth of business every year with China alone, and this is part of the structural trade imbalance and financial imbalance that is at the heart of the globalization of our uh, economic system. How it works in very simple terms is that China sells cheap household goods to American consumers that buy them. The dollars are then transferred to the Chinese uh, sovereign wealth fund, the Chinese central bank, and this Chinese central bank then finances our budget deficits, and that this relationship has kind of worked Uh, for quite a while, but has become way out of balance uh, recently because people around the world are now beginning to wonder about the future of the American economy as it continues to hemorrhage jobs. Uh, We focused on this over many, many years on gray matters because the jobs uh, situation in the United States is crucial. As people lose jobs, they then, most people simply don't have enough savings um, to keep their houses. So this continues the spiral of the foreclosure problem, which, of course, is another wing of the multifaceted economic uh, mess that the Obama administration has inherited. And for simplistic purposes, what's, what's happened over the last 40 years, and I do appreciate that Obama told the American people that the party is over. The United States has borrowed too much money. The federal government is too far in debt, and American consumers are too far in debt. And, of course, much of this consumer spending that's occurred in the United States has occurred because of credit, credit cards. And, of course, Americans owe about a trillion dollars of credit cards to financial companies and banks, big banks, and many... Uh, economic um, experts uh, have observed, by the way, that that is why 
that this credit card crisis is going to be the next problem in the American economy, that uh, this house of cards is still falling and that there is no white knight. A white knight, of course, is known as a figure on Wall Street that comes in to bail out a company. The most famous white knight is Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett, who has quite a lot of cash at, uh, in his uh, pocket and is very conservative politically, though it's quite interesting that he endorsed Obama in the 2008 election and also endorsed Kerry in the 2004 election. Uh, because he's wise enough to know that the fiscal policies that the Republican administration has uh, pursued for 40 years, dating back to Richard Nixon, popularized by Ronald Reagan, and still part of the inherent debate that we're seeing unfold politically. You know, a letter to the editor that occurred uh, back on the Ann Arbor News on the 20th of October I won't cite this individual, I'll just say it's a man from Brighton, wrote to the Ann Arbor News, and he wrote, Senator Biden has said, and this was part of the debate that he'd had with Sarah Palin recently, he said, Senator Biden has said that it's, quote, patriotic to pay taxes. His counterpart, Sarah Palin, said that it is not. It appears that Palin and McCain are holding fast to that tried-and-true Republican principle of borrow and spend, a policy that helps account for our current financial crisis. It is fiscally sound to pay for programs when you have the resources. I'm aware that this is the old Democratic policy of tax and spend, but it works. You pay as you go. Bush, McCain, and company don't seem to understand this concept. Speaking of taxes, how about charging the Social Security tax, changing the Social Security tax law, so that there is no tax on all earnings, not just on earnings up to 102000 It's a very simple way of keeping the f Social Security system solvent. The current system favors the wealthy. And this, of course, is going to be part of, and this is a very succinct letter written before the uh, presidential election of uh, 2008, that is an, a complete... Um, recapitulation of what we've been debating about here in the United States, really, uh, since Reagan came on the scene. And, uh, and it also presages what's going to be upcoming regarding the solvency of Social Security. Social Security is not insolvent, but some of the other government entitlement programs are. Social Security, uh, they simply can make adjustments in payroll taxes and or this limit that he's talking about, simply raise the income level in which you have to pay Social Security taxes. That keeps Social Security solvent. Um, the party is over. And I guess so is uh, Gray Matters here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. So um, do stay tuned. Yazoo City Calling is coming up next right, out, uh, right here on this fine station. With the down-home blues, I think I saw Morgan out of the corner of my eye, so he's uh, the man in charge, and he's a great guy, so keep her uh, tuned right here on 88.3, and we'd like to thank Andrew for engineering this evening. Good night.
Hello, Dave Emery here. I'm inviting you to join me and 88.3 FM WCBN Ann Arbor every Friday at 6 p.m. for Dave Emery's For the Record. We look at history and where it's gotten us in a whole new light. That's Dave Emery's For the Record every Friday evening at 6 on 88.3 FM WCBN Ann Arbor, freeing your mind for over 30 years. 